Welcome to A Closer Look, presented by ESPNPR, the only part of ESPN that is owned by public radio. My name is Nate Fisher. And my name is Will Sennett. This is the first episode of our eight-episode look into what really happened in the 1979 World Series. 1979. A nation sat in mile-long lines at the gas station, listening transfixed at the radio in their big shoe-leather brown Cadillac Eldorados, changing the dial through the music of ABBA, Earth, Wind & Fire, and pre-Rollins-era Black Flag before settling on the sports channel for the most incredible World Series ever. Baseball had a vice grip on the nation during the 70s. Reggie Jackson, the big red machine, Hank Aaron's pursuit of the all-time home run record. The nation's pastime was more important than ever, coming off the Vietnam War and the death of Elvis Presley on his toilet in Graceland, Tennessee. You ask your average Joe the plumber today, who played in the 1979 World Series? And they'd mumble something like, uh, the Orioles? The Pirates? Uh, the Yankees? The Dodgers? And you'd be close, but oh so wrong. Because the real 1979 World Series was the most controversial series of all time, eclipsing even the Chicago Black Sox of 60 years prior. A series between two teams who no longer exist, which saw the loss of billions of dollars in damage, in ad revenue, and countless hospitalizations. And more than a dozen lives. The World Series between the Nashville Pickers and the Lower Manhattan Gambinos. This is A Closer Look. Now, Nate, I haven't set foot there in two decades since my family sold our lake house, but I have a kinship with the city of Nashville. And I'm a New Yorker. Hey, oh, I'm in Lower Manhattan over here. The story of the Nashville Pickers is the story of America itself, a blue-collar team for a blue-collar people. The dream that would become the Nashville Pickers started out in a tent on a steamy Sunday. I had a vision from the Lord when I was taking a nap. And the Lord said, just as Moses built a city in the desert, so shall you build a baseball stadium here on this land formerly a low-income black neighborhood. This is audio from the documentary God's Chosen Devil, the story of Ted Roper and the Brethren. And the man speaking is Reverend Ted Roper. Now, I only ever heard of this guy growing up as being the guy who dressed up as Jesus and chained himself to a tree anytime the sales tax went up. Theodore Ezekiel Roper was born in a creek in 1895. The son of the sole dairy farmer in the state of Tennessee, Ted quickly developed a passion for two of America's pastimes, baseball and Christianity. Using the proceeds from his father's dairy farm, the Reverend started the White Church of the Pale Christ. And with his charisma and knack for self-promotion, quickly grew it into the most popular place of worship in the entire state. This from a story in the Nashville Word Rag from 1945, quote, A man of infinite fury and almost directionless anger, the young Reverend Roper speaks as if he were an atomic bomb, and the people of Nashville are all Japanese. Warning to listeners, the war had just ended, and that was pretty much the only metaphor anyone had. We apologize in advance. After taking that trademark fury to the Tennessee State House and later Congress for 20 years, 
Reverend Roper was able to secure tax-free religious designation for a baseball stadium on land his family had seized during Reconstruction. This required certain religious modification to a baseball stadium that we'll get into later. But in 1970, construction began on the Holy Cow Dairy Stadium and Megachurch. The team was originally called the Nashville Cotton Pickers, parentheses, from the old times. Some people thought the parenthetical was a racist dog whistle, and nobody liked that. Nobody in the North. But Reverend Ted was an innovator, and in a desperate attempt to find another excuse to keep the name Pickers, actually invented the guitar pick. What? Yeah, it was invented in 1970 by a priest as a runaround distraction from racist advertising. But also, the Reverend loved music. Everyone said it was crazy to build a baseball stadium in Nashville, just down the street from the Grand Ole Opry. For people that loved country music, baseball was just too modern. They also struggled to draw fans on a national level as well. Because up north in the Big Apple, another team was stealing all the spotlight. New York City in 1970. Who wouldn't want to be there? Taxi driver, garbage strikes, Saturday Night Live. No better time to be in any city. But you had to watch out for the mob. New York in the 70s was ran by the Frazettas in the Bronx, the Pangolinis in Queens, and the Gambinos in Lower Manhattan. And famously, Brooklyn and Staten Island had no Italians. Now you might be asking, why did New York, already home to the Yankees and the Mets, need a third team? And the answer to that is Carmine Gambino. Here's a 60 Minutes interview of Carmine from the time. Well, in New York, there's the three families. We all know that. The Frazettas of the Yankees, the Pangolinis of the Mets, and what do we got? We're not going to be the only family without dick in our hands, so we got us a team. The Gambinos famously had Paul Giamatti's dad installed as commissioner of baseball, and his first order of business was to award a contract for a team based right in the middle of Lower Manhattan, the densest commercial neighborhood in America. So that's why they built the stadium in the sky. Yep. The Gambinos owned plenty of profitable Wall Street real estate. Why would they knock it down for a stadium? So they built the only stadium in the world that could seat 25,000 fans while being on top of several different important financial institutions. Here's Carmine again. And why directly on Wall Street? The Gambino family owns Wall Street, which means we own the ground above Wall Street. So we figured, why don't we put those cocksuckers in the shade? Throw a field on top of them. And that's exactly what they did. Six months later, the Marlboro and Camel Filtered Cigarette Stadium finished construction. Now, you went to a lot of games as a youngster. What was it like to experience a baseball game from 600 feet above the ground? Oh, it was awful. You had to get there four hours early because the elevators only took eight people at a time, and it was built directly in a wind tunnel. I think the batting average in the stadium was like 190. I was in the ground for 13 no-hitters. We had to bring two gloves to the game, one for baseballs and one for birds attacking you in the stands. Why did anyone go? Well, a lot of people worked in the buildings underneath it. But the Gambinos also spent so much money on players, it was fun to watch them hit home runs that would turn into doubles because they kept hitting seagulls. 
Now tell me about, what was Nashville Stadium called? The Holy Cow Dairy Stadium and Mega Church. Oh, like the cheese company. Yep. Reverend Ted owned that too. But the cheese company was just a little bit better run than the HC. Construction on the Holy Cow Stadium continues today, two months after it was scheduled to be completed. The team's owner, Reverend Ted Roper, announced yesterday that he received another vision from God. Now, who doesn't love Moses? Serious question. If you're not here to see a giant statue of Moses, one of my boys will come kick the shit out of you. The Reverend is demanding that the center field stands be altered to make room for the 150-foot statue of Moses receiving the word of God from the proverbial burning bush that, according to Reverend Ted, must be burning at all times. We interviewed one of the builders hired for this job. Well, we got to the stadium to finish installing the toilets and the Reverend sent us all out to center field. What were y'all there to work on? Well, there was this big pile of two-by-fours, and Ted Roper was there, and he gave us a picture of Moses that looked more like Elvis, and he said, I want you to build me a bush that burns forever. An anonymous source told this reporter that when asked about how exactly to keep the bush burning at all times, the reverend simply replied, figure it out. Nate, Holy Cow Stadium was a mess. Couldn't have been much worse than the Marlboro Camel. The infield and outfield bled into each other due to the constant barrage of concerts taking place on the field between and sometimes during games, as the Reverend decided that instead of competing with the Grand Old Opry, he would just bring the Grand Old Opry to the stadium, which was strapped for cash due to the fact that all the seats behind home plate, about one-fifth altogether, were reserved for Jesus and angels from heaven in case the Day of Judgment happened when the Pickers were playing. Stocked with Schlitz and popcorn, of course, because angels love beer. The seat directly behind home plate, reserved for Jesus Christ and Johnny Cash whenever he was in town, was made of 24 karat solid gold, which would often interfere with every game, leading to multiple errors for each team. Sounds like you weren't really a fan. Well, I was a fan of the team, and the Pickers lost every game I went to. Most of the team's history wasn't exactly touched by God. We lost 85% of our games for the first five years as a team. We had a hard time attracting free agents. People would tell me, Reverend, nobody wants to sign a contract that says they will never commit a sin. That was from Reverend Ted's autobiography, I Am Not God, But I'm Dern Close. Here's what shortstop Bob Clunker said in a profile on him. Yeah, the no sinning clause scared the bejesus out of me. My agent said, don't worry about it, the Reverend's usually on pills, he won't notice. But one time I had a beer at a cookout on Sunday and the Reverend caught wind. Next day I got called into his office and there was probably, <laughs> she's 25 to 30 people in this 10 by 10 room, all in gold robes. Those were the Brethren. Oh yeah, we loved the Brethren as kids. They were like mascots to us, incredibly dark and sad given what they went on to do. So I walked in and the reverend gestured at the men and he said, choose. So I pointed at the one closest to me and the reverend cut his pinky off with a sword like a, like a King Arthur sword made of gold. Did it freak me out? Yeah, but I just love playing ball. So you can see how we had a hard time fielding a team of all-stars. I don't think the Gambinos had that issue. You bet your bottom dollar we didn't. That's a line from Broadway. And who didn't want to go play over on Broadway? And forget going to the Yankees. The Gambinos were fun. 
they had parties with SNL, like the good years of SNL. It took us three years of existing to build a championship team because the owners flat out told players they could do cocaine, get free beer at the stadium, get into fights, have hookers. Frankly, any player who didn't want to go play in Lower Manhattan didn't want to because they were scared. So what was the lineup going into 1979? We went into 1979 thinking this team could win a championship in any sport. Thanks to the hard partying, fun atmosphere created by the owners, the team was immediately able to attract big names and find success in the form of wins. Making the playoffs in 1975, 1976, and 1978. Not 77, that was the year of, quote, a little too much cocaine, as people said. But they were never able to get over the hump and reach the World Series. Until 1978, when they had the most successful offseason in MLB history. The first signing was of Gilmore Deeds, the five-time gold glove winning base-stealing shortstop from Atlanta, followed closely by two-time Cy Young winner Judge Gideon from the Milwaukee Brewers. Quote, I will never leave Milwaukee, Judge Gideon. Until visiting New York for the first time, which led him to recant his previous statement, saying, quote, I will never set foot in Milwaukee again. And then came what was at the time the biggest free agent signing in MLB history. The hot young team of Major League Baseball, the Lower Manhattan Gambinos, has pulled off the most audacious week of signings in any of our lifetimes. With the additions of hitters Gilmore Deeds and Leroy Brown, all other teams have been put on notice. And that notice reads, you're screwed. Leroy Brown? That name sounds familiar. Yes, that Leroy Brown. Craziest thing, he wasn't even the baddest man in the whole damn town of Lower Manhattan. But the Gambinos weren't done. Because the next week, the Gambinos would sign the baddest man in the whole damn world. A man who everybody knew simply as Mr. Clean. Nate, when I get home from a long day at work, I like to unwind. Me too, Will. And on the weekends, I like to have fun with my friends. Did you know that 65% of people are actually having fun with their friends? That's why we're excited to talk about today's sponsor of A Closer Look, beer. Brewed all around the country and the world, beer is the exciting new beverage that's reshaping the way millennials and podcast listeners consume liquid. It's like water, but it gets you drunk. Like whiskey? Yes, but less drunk than that. And thanks to their patented concept of making a lot of it, you can drink a ton of beer and not feel insane or like you're going to die. That's right. You can drink a ton of it over the course of a few hours and still have room for a big dinner, like an entire bag of chips or a two-foot thing of beef jerky and chicken nuggets. Beer is great for right before going to the water park with your friends. If you want to have a lot of fun and not be scared when you go down the big water slide or make the idea of getting in a fight in line for the water slide all the more appealing. A lot of millennials in their high-paced business life don't have time to fall asleep 20 minutes into a matinee screening of Lady Ghostbusters. But with beer, you can be snoring in a matter of minutes. Do you miss the absolute joy you felt as a child when you walked into a room and saw a big buck hunter console? Do you want to recapture that feeling? Well, now you can with seven to nine beers on a Saturday before noon. Just go to the gas station and use the promo code ACLOSERLOOK. He might not understand you, but that's okay. It'll all work out and you'll have a good night. Did Nashville have any signings? They couldn't afford it. 
Sure, they got some free agents off the scrap heap like Rodney, the cooler Womack, and Elliot Van Leer. The biggest was first baseman Teddy Kruns, who was notable only because the previous year he died for seven minutes while on the field after choking on a wad of chewing tobacco. And everybody's lack of enthusiasm was upended when the team managed to start the 79 season even worse than people thought, going 2-18. But the biggest change in the season wasn't from a signing at all. It was a gift from God. And that gift was named Opie White. Some people are born to sing, others are born to dance, but a lucky few are born to play baseball. Every generation had its Opie White. Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays. Some would argue that Opie blew them all out of the water. Much like the Messiah himself, Opie came from extremely humble beginnings. This is an excerpt from Opie's biography, God's Right Fielder, voiced by Wilford Brimley. He was born in the water. Some say that's why he moved like it on the field. His grandmammy gave birth to him in a creek in a town called Hootfrilary. Less of a town and more of a collection of wood folk. Hootfrilary received its name in 1854 when the census man came to town. He asked the first woman he saw, Ma'am, where am I? Nobody knew the name of the place they were. That's just where they were. The lady knew the only man who knew a damn thing about anything was old Larry, who lived at the top of the hill, which made him the mayor. So she told the census man, just hoot for Larry. And the census man said, well, it's good enough for me. The youngest of 12 boys, Opie grew up playing in the woods with his 11 older brothers. The Whites were big, strong men, said to have descended from Paul Bunyan himself. The white boys filled their days by playing smack tree in the holler. The point of the game was to take a log and hit it against the tree hard enough to break it. And that's where Opie developed his signature powerful looping swing. Discovered by the Reverend just before the 1979 season began, Opie spent only one month in the minors before making his Major League debut on May 23, 1979, in a game against the Philadelphia Phillies, one of the most important days in baseball history. You said you had some audio you wanted to play, Will. Oh yeah, Nate. You're going to like this. Well, it's a swampy day here in Nashville, bottom of the third inning, 2-0 score in favor of the Phillies. And let me tell you, we got a stew boiling out on the field right now. It is wet and it is thick. I love this guy already. Oh yeah, he's legendary. That's the Marshall Marshall Wayne. He was real Marshall back in the day, famous as the man who had shot Babyface Nelson. He was known for his yee-haw style, larger-than-life calls. <laughs> Careful with your foot and greenhorn. <laughs> Looks like half the players are sinking into the field, getting their boots caught in divots left here from last night's Rush concert. I caught some of that show they put on last night, and boy, let me tell you, Rush sucks. And we got a new boy coming up to bat making his Major League debut, the skinny boy. I tell you, I can't tell where the arm ends and the bat begins. Boy, looks like he's made out of sticks. A local boy by the name of Opie White. He stands in waiting for the pitch. I tell you what, I really couldn't stand Rush. Too much drumming. Sounded like a damn assembly line. And oh my lord, this boy Opie White just hit a ball into the pearly gates. It's back. It's back. Deputy, grab my six shooter because we're rounding them up. 
What was that? Oh, that was a gun. He would always do that, bringing guns in to shoot off at the sound booth at an ear-splitting volume for home runs. Whenever he would travel for away games, security would try to confiscate his guns, to which he would always reply, I am a United States federal marshal. You can take my guns after you kill me dead. Call my friend John Edgar Hoover or draw on me right now, you yellow son of a bitch. Opie White went on to have the best debut baseball had ever seen. He ended the day with three home runs and a double that would have gone out if it had not been for the ball striking a raven and falling into the outfield, which would be a sign of things to come. Opie dragged the pickers to a wild card berth, hitting 376 with 49 homers and 132 RBIs. His season was immortalized by the song The Ballad of Opie White by the popular funk soul disco group Groovy World, led by lead singer Money McDonald's. His 12 brothers taught him how to bat, and the good book taught him how to act. He wasn't much for reading or writing, but when it came to baseball, he was disco lightning. White was disco lightning. Opie White was disco lightning. Opie White was disco lightning. Disco lightning. Meanwhile, over in Lower Manhattan, the Gambinos didn't need to call up a gift from God because these guys were a steamroller. They won 28 of their first 30 games, which set a major league record. Here's a call of their 28th win. I don't even know why this little Nancy's pitching to Mr. Clear. Oh! There's a hard hit foul ball. They got a foul ball you can hit hard right here. All right, let's see this cocksucker try that fastball again. Oh! There you go, Mr. Clean. It's a walk-off piss rocket for the Gambinos. Take that shit to your mother's house and tell that whore it's from me. I give it a 350 Iowa. That was Gambino's longtime announcer, John Drama. He uh, swears a lot. Yeah, he spent half his career suspended pretty much every other game. He would come back, swear, get a one game suspension, come back. It helped that the fans really loved him and they really hated the network's replacement, Timmy Wife. I uh, can't really see that could have been a curveball, but it. Might have been a slider. We don't have the perfect vantage point up here to tell how much a ball moves. And it's cold as well. There's a real draft 700 feet up in the air. Well, anyway, that pitch was hit for a home run. That'll make it 11-0 Gambinos, which... You know, for most teams, it's probably a safe lead. But you never know. The Gambinos kept that momentum going for the rest of the season, winning an MLB record 111 games, led by the four-time MVP, the king of baseball, the bald Babadook himself, Mr. Clean. Oh man, Mr. Clean. I remember when we signed him. That offseason, every kid shaved their head to look like their favorite player. The mayor stood in Times Square handing out $10 bills. It was like the Beatles coming to town if the Beatles could hit for power. And just how good was he? At first, terrible, horrendous. He had one hit through his first 20 games. And of course, when you're that bad for the Gambinos, 
you get visited. Here's later testimony from the interrogation of one Ricky the Weasel. Yeah, I pay a visit to anybody who's not doing good business by the family. I don't care if he hits baseballs or makes cheesesteaks or what. If it's bad business, I'm breaking his pinky. He didn't break his pinky, did he? He broke his pinky. Why? At the time, I did not understand the correlation between him using the pinky and hitting the baseball. Afterwards, I stopped breaking pinkies of baseball players, and Mr. Clean, well, he got enormous. Like, humongous. Mr. Clean went to rehab in what was, at the time, Yugoslavia for slight pinky surgery and must have gained probably 55 pounds. He came back a month later and hit 22 homers in four weeks, and most of those balls flew into somebody's office nearby. The Wall Street guys started wearing motorcycle helmets to work. Sounds to me like he was the first player to use steroids. Well, we'll never know because there was no such thing as drug testing back then. And back then, it wasn't called steroids. It was called super soldier juice. But Mr. Clean caught up to the other power hitters on the team, like Leroy Brown, Francis Bipoc, and Sleepy Goodnight. And the Gambinos waltzed through the playoffs. The Pickers, meanwhile, had a much more difficult road to the World Series. It was all hands on deck. A hand injury to rookie phenom Colby Bryant set the team back, but they powered through and were able to defeat the Cincinnati Reds thanks to a dramatic play at the plate. We are tied at the bottom of the ninth. Play is set to resume as the Pickers medical staff has retied Opie's shoe at second. Opie is the winning run as Trey Lunch stands in and smokes one right back up the middle. Caesar Geronimo comes throwing to the plate. He has Opie dead to rights. Uh, well, folks, I don't know what to tell you. I just woke up here in the booth. We're all waking up. I've peed my pants. It appears, yep, everyone in the stadium has peed their pants. Men, women, children. Now wait a jackrabbit minute. Opie White is sitting crisscross applesauce at home plate. The umpire has just finished throwing up and he's safe at the plate. Oh my goodness. Opie is eating a piece of string cheese and he is safe. My oh my. Now my gun is covered in piss, rendering it useless, but I am firing it into the air. Nonetheless, the pickers are going to the World Series. In the conference series against the San Francisco Giants, the Pickers were able to outlast them in five games, thanks to another strong showing from Opie, sending the Pickers to their first ever World Series. The stage was set for an all-time matchup, two teams, one from God's country, the other from Big Money Metropolis. Everyone expected a quintessential baseball clash. They did not get that. They did not get that at all. What they got was a disgrace. Crimes, treachery, bedlam, chaos. When the dust settled, both of these teams would cease to exist. Three dozen people would be in jail, and two of the greatest players to ever live would be dead. Next time on A Closer Look.